The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. You take that out. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 will be our main focus. We're going to read 1 through 6 here in a moment. But our main focus is going to be the first three verses. Next week we'll cover verses 4, 5, and 6 together. I think throughout all of history there's been a battle between thinkers and doers. I think this is a battle that has waged on, raged on for a very long time. Thinkers seem to be the creative folk. They're the people of concepts. They're the people who like to sit in their office, think of ways to make things, I guess you could do air quotes, make things better. Uh, that's what their plan is anyways. These are people who need a plan. They want to have a plan, and they want to be able to then have that plan executed. Doers, on the other hand, are people of action. Give them a list of tasks, and it excites them. They're going to get it done. They're going to get it done, hopefully, in a timely manner. That's what doers think, right? Doers get things done. That's what we do. But sometimes they just want to jump in. They will just jump in without a plan. Let's just get at it, which sometimes can cause headaches. These people, often it seems, do not get along, the thinkers and doers. They seem to butt heads. We see this with white collar versus blue collar. We see this with management versus union. We see this with coaches versus players, oftentimes. I remember working at Ford on the assembly line, and I had my task, whatever it was, I don't remember, but there was this little guy, engineer guy, who would come around and watch us, and he'd just stare at you, and he'd have his little paper. And I remember the, the elite Ford workers would say, when you see this guy, you move as slow as you possibly can. Act like your job is the most difficult job in here. I'm like, why? Because he's trying to add work to you. He's got formulas. He's got different things that he's writing out. And he knows in 52 seconds, you might be able to do one more screw. You do six, he thinks you can do seven. And we all hated that guy because he was a thinker, not a doer. You know, and he'd try to add to our jobs. And we'd say, you don't live in the real world. You live up there in your high tower. It doesn't work that way. See, the battle raged on. I know what it was like. I've lived it. We live it every day. Well, this battle happens also in church life. It happens for people who love theology versus people who love practical ministry. And you see these people seem to butt heads all the time. The people who want to study God's word and know God's word, but it seems like sometimes that is it. They, maybe they want it just for debating, for yelling at you, for proving you wrong, whatever it might be. But on the other hand, you have the people who just want to go and do stuff. And when you ask them why, why are we doing this? The answer might be, I love Jesus. But they can't go much from there. There's no real good reason for it. And we see this battle sometimes within local churches, within the church in general. I say this because today we enter a new portion of Ephesians. All the first three chapters have been learning about what God has done for us already, what he has, what he has done, all of these different good things. And so what we haven't seen in the first three chapters, only one time we've seen it, and it was for us to remember. But what we haven't seen in all three chap first three chapters of Ephesians is this, go do this. You've never been told that. We've never, we've never seen that as Paul has talked to this church of 
go do this. So for the thinkers in here and the theology nerds, you've loved the first three chapters. You've loved hearing about all these things about God and the the great things that we have learned. But for you doers, you've left thinking, I just wish he'd tell me what to do. Tell me not to curse. You know, tell me to be nice to my neighbor. Tell me these things that are practical so I know what to go in and do. And so where we're headed, though, is what Paul's going to get to in chapters four all the way through six is for you doers. We're going to see now what we are called to do. But here's the thing. Scripture doesn't speak of two different classes of people, thinkers and doers. It's combined into one person. We are supposed to be both types of people. James 1.22 tells us we cannot be hearers of the word only, but also doers of the word. Right? We, we, are to be, we are to be both. And as I already mentioned, there's problems with that. If you are somebody who only hears the word and you know the word, you're probably also a very judgmental person. If that's all you are, if that's all you do is you love to read your books, but you don't want to talk to your neighbor you know, you, you don't want to really be changed by the word of God. It doesn't necessarily impact how you then treat your boss or treat your employees. You just like to know these things. You probably are very cynical, cynical of things of the church all the time. Every single church you drive by, you can tell me everything wrong with every church that you see, every single one, because this is what God's word says. See, that's the danger of just being a hearer. But there's also a danger of just being a doer, as I mentioned before. You, number one, are probably exhausted. When it comes to church life especially, you're probably very exhausted. Because you do, 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 but you don't have that answer of why do I do this? What is the purpose for what I am doing? Right? What, what is the reason behind all of this? And so we see burnout and we see exhaustion. And a lot of times, here's another danger of, of doers, It's people who are just doers. They want to see the commands of God and they want to go do it. As you start to live your life in a way where you are earning God's favor, you think. And so when you have a good week of doing, you come into church on Sunday morning ready to worship because you believe God is excited that you're here because he's pleased with you this week. But when you have a rough week of doing, didn't read your Bible like you should, you didn't listen to Smile FM, you listened to the old country station. That was bad. You know, usually I like to do this. You come in here maybe more with your shoulders sunk, your head down, because you're going to be reprimanded today because you didn't do all that you were supposed to do this week. See, that is a slippery slope. And so there's dangers in both areas. And what Paul does here in Ephesians 4 is it starts, he says, therefore, So because of chapters one through three, because of all of the great truths that we have discussed, and you got to remember them, we we went over them all last week. He's talked about election, predestination, adoption, redemption, the work of the spirit. He's talked about how what God has done through his son, Jesus, has brought Jew and Gentile together in unification in Christ. He's talked about all these amazing truths that the world had not heard before. He says now, therefore, and he's going to tell us what to do. And in verses in chapter four, verses one through six, you're going to see the beginning of this. And I think it's very interesting what Paul talks about first. So follow along with me as we read the first six verses of chapter four. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, these, these six verses, really, we can see two different sections, and that's why we're just covering one this morning. Verses one through three really focuses on our unity in our character and in our actions as a church family. Verses four through six show our unity because of God's unity, and we'll talk about that, like I said, next week. But Paul says there in verse one, after saying all these great truths, all these theological doctrines, he's, he's set this stage, he's built the foundation, First thing he tells us to do is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, I guess the question, a fair question then off of that is what is my calling then? If I'm supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, what is, what is this calling? Well, before Christ, before you were saved by God's grace, your calling was very simple and it was this, to rebel against God in everything you said and did. Some of you still live in that way. You haven't been saved by God's grace. You haven't by faith trusted in Jesus. And so this is what you do every day. Rebel against God. Many people do this in ignorance of Jesus. They don't even know the name of Jesus maybe, but yet still they serve everything other than Christ in their life. This is what they do. They're blind to the truth. They do not know the truth. We as well, before we were saved by God's grace, we were completely blind to the truth of the gospel and what it said. In fact, we were like, I saw this in, in one of the commentaries, I can't remember which one, but we were like Pilate. You remember Pilate questioned Jesus and he had Jesus standing right in front of him, right in front of him. And what is the question that Pilate asked Jesus? What is truth? And what is ironic is truth was staring him right back in the face and Pilate could not see it. Pilate could not understand it. Pilate did not know this. He lived in complete rebellion to the truth, even when it stared right back at him. But what we know is that in Christ, our calling has been changed. When we've been saved by grace, this calling in our life has changed. And it has changed to where now what we do is we serve God through Christ every day. That is your calling. That is my calling as a Christian. We all share the same calling. We serve Christ daily. We do this daily in everything we say and everything we do. And we know that we can actually achieve this. We can do this. Why? Because God has poured his grace out on us and allows us to be able to do this. He has given life where there was once no life. You remember, Paul said this in Ephesians chapter two, verse four through six. Remember in verses one through three of chapter two, all bad. You guys are sinners. You're gross. You're disgusting. You, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Does it say that exactly? But then you remember verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What God has done for us is he has given us the ability to serve him daily. And so as a Christian, we live then without excuse to do that. 
We have the Holy Spirit in our lives that enables us to go and to walk worthy of our calling. And so then the next question is this, if that is my calling, if my calling is to serve God daily, Paul is saying I should walk worthy, what does that mean? How do I then walk worthy in this calling? And this is what Paul goes on to explain for us in these verses. And the first word that he uses is a word I think we all hate, if I'm being honest. Humility. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility. Now, wait a second. I don't want to be humble, I want to be proud. I want to be proud. I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the king. I've been, I've been chosen by the king. I've been adopted into his family. I want to go and blast that out everywhere I can. I want to be extremely proud about this, maybe even arrogant. But Paul says, no, we live with humility. And so when we think about the word humility, we're going to think of it as the opposite of pride. As Christians, we know that we are supposed to rid ourselves of all pride. We know that that's in scripture. We know that it's everywhere. It's a quote that's shared all the time. Pride cometh before the fall. You've heard that before, I'm sure. We know that we're not supposed to be filled with pride. Paul has even shown us in earlier chapters how this happens. Because you remember in chapter two, Paul would say in verses eight through 10, for you are saved by grace, not of your own works. Why? So that nobody can boast. So that no man can boast. So as Christian, you sitting here today as a Christian, you have nothing you can boast about about your faith. You can't say because I'm so awesome, because I'm so great, because I understand scripture better than you, because I do more than you. No, none of us have had the ability to say that. God has completely wiped out any pride that we would have in our life when it comes to our salvation by saying, I did it all. You did nothing. I did it all. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. Why? So that nobody can boast. There is no boasting. But even knowing that, even understanding that, I think all of us would have to admit that oftentimes in our life, what happens is pride starts to creep in. We just can't seem to kill all the pride. I really think it's the biggest problem we all have as Christians. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way in his commentary. He says, Pride is easily wounded by what we consider thoughtless or unfair conduct by others. Think about that. All it takes, all it takes, husbands, for you and your pride to be just destroyed is for your wife probably just to say two words to you. Two words that you think are just unfair. Two words, you know, that you were just out of the blue. Or maybe she didn't notice you know, maybe she just didn't notice something that you did at home and instantly your pride is just hurt and destroyed. Now, maybe she honestly didn't notice. Maybe she walked right by the fact that you folded clothes. She just walked right by and your pride just demolished. Now, wise, before you start thinking too good of yourself, it doesn't take much for your pride to be hurt either. You have some new clothes on and he didn't notice. And what happens? It just crushes. What, what is that? What, what is that inside of us that allows that to happen, that, that allows us to ride this roller coaster ride of just anger and frustration? It's, it's pride. It's pride in our life where we begin to think we are the most important thing 
in this world, not just to ourselves, but actually to everybody. I should be the most important thing to everybody. Did you know that I went to a party and he, I know he saw me and he did not come and say hi to me. What a jerk. I hate him. I do not like him anymore. I can't believe I go to the same church as that guy. Pride. Just, just pride welling up inside of us. Philippians 2.3 says this for us as Christians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How often do we find ourselves obeying this verse? Within our home? And let's take it even further. How often do we do this in church? How often are we willing to put others before ourselves, to think of ourselves as less significant than them? In the conversations that you have, does it show that you are somebody who is humble? Somebody who has great humility? Or how about the actions that you do? The actions that you do at work each and every day, is it because of your humility or are you often doing it because of pride? You see, Paul says if we're going to walk in a way that's worthy of this calling that God has called us to, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to live a life of humility. Doers, are you liking this sermon yet? This is, this is for you. This is for you doers. Stop being so prideful. And first of all, let's be humble. Well, the second word's not much better for all of us. With all humility and gentleness. All throughout the Gospels, we see the gentleness of our Lord and his dealings with the hurting and dealing with the people who are broken. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is our Savior. That was right about there. This is the one that Spencer just prayed for us. He prayed to the Father and said, conform us into the image of your Son who you saved us through. We want to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And when we talk about Jesus here, what, it, what do we see? He goes away because he's tired. People come to him and he still has compassion on them and he ministers to them, he heals them. And then it's saying it's to prove the prophecy of Isaiah. A bruised reed, he will not break. He will be gentle in spirit. He will be a gentle savior. And that's what we see in our savior all over the gospels. We as Christians, we as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to be able to treat people within the church family and out of the church in a very gentle way. Think about it. For those outside of these walls, for those who have not been saved by, by God's grace through Christ, they live with no hope every single day. No hope every single day. And our posture towards those people should not be, come here, Reed, I'm about to break you. Our posture should be a broken heart because they have no hope. 
They're living with no hope. They're running in a rat race in a maze that has no end. There's no end. There's no satisfaction that can be found in this life apart from Christ. We know that as believers. They do not. And so they are doing everything they can to hopefully scratch for some point to their existence. That's how they're living. That is what they are doing. And that's what we have to understand is we are the ones who actually have the hope for them because we have found it because God has shed his grace on us. And so our posture towards them needs to be of gentleness. They do not know any better than to sin because they are sinners. That's what they are. We shouldn't expect anything else. But for those in the church, we should care for each other. We should handle each other with gentle spirits again. We care for their hurts and we even care about their mistakes. And we love each other even through these. Just like Jesus, when she, would, when she would come up to the woman who was caught in adultery. You remember that? She was caught in adultery and they throw her down before Jesus and Jesus writes something and he talks to her a little bit and the Pharisees want her to be stoned because this is what the law says, stone. You remember Jesus looked at me and said, all right, we'll, we'll do this thing. But whoever doesn't have sin, you start us, please. You start the proceedings. And everybody starts walking away. They all start leaving. Now, don't think for a second that Jesus was okaying her sin. Because we see after that, when Jesus finally talks to her, he says, listen, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. It wasn't go live in your sin. It was go now and sin no more. But what did he do? He handled her with great gentleness, even in her sin. So often in the life of church, at least this is what I've experienced over my 30 some years in church life, is all it takes sometimes is one mistake. And you are maligned by everybody in the congregation. You're seen as a horrible person. Someone not worthy of love anymore. You're an embarrassment to the cause, they might think. Or whatever it is. But that should not be so within the Christian community. None of us have any pride to stand on. We all should be humble and we should handle each other with gentleness and with care. This is a brother and sister in the Lord that I do not want to bruise anymore. They've been bruised, they've been beaten, they've been battered. It is not my job to continue that barrage. With gentleness, I must love them and care for them And yes, maybe part of that is to encourage them to sin no more, but to love them in the midst of that. Paul moves on after gentleness, and he says, with patience, not quick to anger, but long-suffering. In the book of Jonah, which we went through in the month of August, we saw that Jonah was always quick to anger, and God taught him a very valuable lesson at the end of the book. And you remember, he asked Jonah the question, Jonah, who are you to be angry Jonah, you live with all this anger over this plant that you did nothing for. Who do you think you are to be angry? You remember the lesson was very simple. God was telling Jonah, I am God, creator of all things, and you are not. Stop acting like you are. Now, I hope that taught all of us a lesson, but it teaches us a lesson in patience. Who are we to be angry? Today in our world, we see less and less patience in and out of the church. We feel as if we have the right to be angry all the time. It is our right. For some Christians, sadly, I think it's their calling. 
We want to share our feelings because we feel we deserve to share our feelings. In fact, we feel as if I'm not sharing my feelings, I'm not being true to myself. Now that's language what we hear outside of these walls, but sadly it's also language that we often hear inside the walls of the church. If I don't share my feelings, I'm just not true to who I am. (laughs) Are you being serious? You think that's what scripture teaches? Scripture says your heart is evil and wicked. The way you feel is almost always probably wrong, wrong to feel that way. And so we have to be careful and we have to be patient with one another. As Christians, if we are really to be true to ourselves, true to who we are in Christ, then patience is what comes out of us because we do not live for ourselves, we live for him. It's not about me, it's about Christ. And so Paul goes on, he doesn't just say patience, but he also says bearing with one another in love, which kind of goes together with patience. But this, along with patience, it's specifically dealing with the trials and the struggles of fellow believers together. As a church family, this is something that we must be willing to wade into, to be willing to bear each other's burdens, it tells us, to care for one another during hardships and during the trials and the, and the suffering of life. Now listen, as we do this, as we do this faithfully as a church family, it is going to make your life busier. Don't, I mean, I, I can just tell you that. If you're gonna be faithful to this, to bear each other's burdens, it will make you so much busier in your life. Yes, it might cause you to have to stall some of your forward progress in your portfolio or in your family or whatever it might be. But why do we do it? We do it because we love each other as brothers and sisters. And when you hurt, I'm supposed to hurt. When you have joy, I'm supposed to have joy. God has brought us together to love and to care for one another. We're called to bear each other's burdens in Galatians, it says. You know, I think about the fact me and Spencer had the privilege of going and visiting some people who haven't been able to come back to church just for different reasons. And it's been good to hear them say, uh, we, we went and saw... Uh, the revels, and to hear them say, like, we got so much food for a month and a half from the church. It was ridiculous. I mean, freezer was full of food, but to hear that burdens were being bared by our church family for a member of our church family who experienced the love and grace through the church of God. I mean, just, just a fantastic thing to hear. And so don't think I'm just standing up here condemning and saying, we're not doing this. I'm not saying that at all. I believe this is happening. But it's definitely something that we could do better in, of understanding that it takes time to bear each other's burdens, to wade into the messiness of people's life. I gotta say, for me, one of the most uncomfortable things in the world is walking into a room of a family who just lost a loved one. You talk about wading into the dirt and the muck of life. What in the world do you say? What do you say to somebody when you're you're dealing with something like that? Or yesterday, I was asked to be a part of a memorial service in town for September 11th, and it was a dedication for uh, one of the firefighters who passed away, Joe Lito, uh, not too long ago. What do I stand there and say? Some guy from Monroe gonna talk about terrorist attack that happened 20 years ago and try to give comfort to everybody? What, what am I supposed to do in this, in this moment, right? To me, that's, that's very weighty and that's very heavy, But as a Christian, this is a calling that we're called to do, is to be willing to get into the heaviness of your brothers' and sisters' lives 
as they let you, as they allow you, so that you can love and bear that burden with them. So you can let them know it is okay to hurt. It's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. But we have hope in Christ beyond all these things to encourage them, to help them. That's why it's so important. That's why Paul, you know, he says you, you should not neglect the coming together and worshiping together. There's so many things that happen when we come together to worship on Sunday. I know people take it very flippantly. I know for vacation, Sunday's the day you drive home. Right? I, know that, I know all these different things. Sunday's a nice day to maybe go get breakfast and then hit the lawn and mow your lawn. I know all this stuff. I know that you catch more fish on Sundays. I get all that. I've, I've experienced those things. But what God has done for us in allowing us to gather together is so big, we just don't comprehend it. And one of those aspects is this, to bear each other's burdens. When you are in the hallways talking to each other and caring for each other, you are bearing each other's burdens. You know, when you come early and you sit in here and you discuss things or you, you stay after and you're talking to each other, this is something that God has given us as a church family that we desperately need, that you all desperately need. Because you know you can't do this on your own. Even though God has saved us by his grace and we know we'll spend eternity with him, life on this earth is still extremely difficult. But God has given us a church family who will bear each other's burdens who will be patient with us, who will be humble, who will be gentle with us, and who will love us, even in our ugliness. That's what Paul is saying we do as Christians, as we walk worthy of this. And look what it says, last verse, three. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The very first and foremost thing that we must note is that we are united in Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is where we are united, and this will be talked about more next week. This is where we find our unity, in Christ. Not in the fact that you're humble, not in the fact that you're gentle. That's not where our main unity is found. Our unity is found in the fact that we are in Christ together, saved by his grace. But Paul goes on, and he says that we are to have a bond of peace. And I want us to hear this, because I think it seems like the church in America has forgotten this. It is our job as Christians to keep peace between us as much as possible. That is what we are called to do. And now, if we are going to do this faithfully, please understand, I don't want to sway you some way and lie to you. If you are going to be a peacemaker, it's going to hurt greatly. It's gonna hurt you. It just is, because you're going to put yourself out there. You're, you're going, if you're really wanting to be this type of person, you're going to have to rid yourselves of all pride. Because if you don't, you're going to want to quit every day. It's funny, you know, I, I talk to these uh, guys who are like, I think God's calling me into ministry. And you start to try to mentor them and you try to like encourage them in different things. And a lot of times they do very good, but almost always it gets to a point where they start to hear bad things about them. You know, things just start happening. Church person got mad at them because the water wasn't ready when it was supposed to be or whatever. It can be the dumbest thing. And almost always it cripples them. Almost always cripples them. I don't know if this whole faster thing is for me. That's what you start to hear. And I always know it's coming. And my response is always this. Do you think I love driving to MMBC every day? 
Do you think I really look forward to it every day? Yes, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to have that business meeting where everybody's gonna be so angry. It's gonna be awesome. And I get to be the one standing there listening to it all. Great. No. It is difficult to love people well. It is very difficult to be a peacemaker because you hear it from every side. You hear it from every side. And what it takes is you have to rid yourself of pride to understand I am not doing this for myself. I am doing this because I am his. And that's not just for pastors. That's for church members also. There are times for you to be a peacemaker in the life of the church, you will have to take a lesser position than what you actually think you are worthy of. It will happen. It's not always the best thing, but this is how we show our humility. There are times that we will do things we simply do not want to do. Or there are times we will have to keep from things that we really want to do. Why? To maintain the peace in the body of Christ. To let my brother or my sister know that I love them this much. That I'm willing to do this for you. I'm willing to mow your grass. I'm willing to help fix up your shed. I'm willing to come to your house and clean your house. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to show you love through what you are going through right now because I want to care for you. I want to love you. I want there to be unity within the body. This is what Paul talks about. It's amazing. He's done three chapters of some of his greatest work, some of his greatest theological work. And when he finally tells us something to do, what does he tell us to do? Be unified. Be unified. Be unified in Christ and be unified in the fact that you are humble, that you are gentle, that you are patient, and that you bear with each other. Could you guys do those things and be unified? And that really will satisfy those three chapters we just talked about. I'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you completely understand those three chapters, all that theology, if you guys could just do these things. You know, I would say that these are the simple elementary principles of the faith. But yet still, 2,000 years after Christ, we still greatly struggle with them to just get rid of our pride, to be humble for each other, to be gentle and care with one another, to be patient and to bear each other's burdens. Paul would say in Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine, as he's wrapping up this book, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I don't want to be complaining. That's not my focus. I love my job. I, I love being your pastor. I love all of you. I love serving. Most days I love coming here. I really do. But it is very grievous when you have a Sunday service, you know, and you're talking to people. And it seems like this verse is completely forgotten. And I want to ask them, 
was there anything good in the service? Like anything? I know the temperature wasn't right. I know someone stole your seat. I know we don't shake hands like you love to do. We don't do that yet. I know the music might not have been exactly what you wanted. I know you didn't like my suit. Is there anything you liked? Did the person next to you say a kind word? Did somebody greet you in the hallway? I mean, were you reminded of God's love at any section of the service? Did you hear scripture read? Were the songs we sung, I know you didn't like them, but did, did you think they at least honored the Lord and the words? Was, was, there, was there anything? If the answer is no, then I think what Paul would say is, then be quiet. Make peace. Be quiet. But if there's anything that was good, talk about that. Unify yourselves in that. Be encouraged in that. But all more so, be encouraged in the fact that all of you who are in here who have been saved by God's grace are united in Christ Jesus, which you can never be separated from. You can never be separated from that because you didn't earn it. We are called to unity. The American church right now is in crisis mode because there is no unity. Now, some of it is very justified. I am not saying we never take a stand. I'm not saying you just let people sit there and beat you and never stand up for yourself. I think scripture speaks to those things. But I think our first posture often should be humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, and bearing with one another, especially within the body of Christ. Now, outside of the church, like I said, within America, our nation is not seeing that in the church. They see the opposite of unity. They see fighting. They see frustration. And, there's, and we are to blame for that as a church. Let that not be so here at MMBC. Yeah, there's all this noise. Let that not be so here. Let us be known in this community as a people who are weird, yes, but they really seem to love each other. They really seem to go out of their way to care for each other. And I wonder why they do that. And let us be faithful to say, let me tell you why we do that. Because we're united in Christ. See, this morning we have Lord's Supper. And we've been commanded to do this ordinance together often, it says. And one of the reasons that God has given us the Lord's Supper is to remember, as the bread points out, that Jesus's body was broken for us as Christians. And then the juice on the inside, we are supposed to remember of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And when we partake of this here in a moment together, what, it, what, what we're supposed to be remembering is all that Jesus has done for us. We're supposed to be pointing to the future, remembering that Jesus told us he will come back for us. And so we look forward to that second advent that Christ has promised us. That's another purpose of this Lord's Supper, but there's another one. Every single person who partakes of this this morning, as you rip this paper back and you take that cracker and as you drink down that juice, you should remember this. The only reason you are a part of this family is because of God's great love and grace in your life. It's not because Tim is special. It's not because you are special. And we should be amazed at the fact that God would unite us together as a body 
to have the privilege to be able to serve one another because he has loved us. I'm no better than anybody else. I have sinned this week that I've committed that I have to go to the Lord and seek forgiveness, and you do too. But yet for some reason, God would put us together to be a church family here, to be light in the darkness. And so this Lord's Supper is a unifying symbol of our togetherness in Christ. And our promise even to each other, when we come together to do this together, we're basically like promising each other again, we are together in Christ. We as the church, together in Christ, to do this together. So I hope that's what happens as we take Lord's Supper. I hope you think about that and you ponder those things. I wanna pray as I pray. Uh, men, if you would come forward as I pray. Uh, we're gonna do this a little different. The, the elements are not in your pew already. Uh, we're gonna hand them out. It's still the same thing. When you, get at, when you get it, just hold on to it. I'll give you instructions in a moment. But let's pray together. Ask God to bless this time of Lord's Supper. God, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ephesians that you've given us. God, as we waded into the first three chapters, all the theology, all the truth of what you have done, how you've redeemed us, how you've saved us, how you've adopted us into your family, how you've chosen us, got all these great truths. God, now we get down to the point to where it says, now because of all these things, live this way. And God, the very first thing you tell us is to live in unity in Christ. God, I, I seek your forgiveness of those times when I haven't done that, when I failed to honor the passage that we read in Philippians, to notice the good things, to speak of those. I seek for forgiveness at times when peace isn't what's first on my mind, but winning is. And God, again, that doesn't mean to downplay the necessity of truth and standing on truth. It's not what I'm getting at. Help us as a church family to love each other how we should. God, do we, we have to do it here first before it can spill out into the community. So God, help us to love each other how you would want us to do. Help us to bear with each other's burdens. Help us to be willing to swallow our pride, to rid ourselves of pride, to be humble, to be gentle with each other to speak of the excellent things. Because God, as a moment, in a moment as we take of the Lord's Supper, we realize that the most excellent thing has been given to us, your son. God, he was willing to obey, he was willing to follow all the way to death on a cross. But God, we know that that cross, though it killed him, the grave could not hold him. And he conquered death conquered hell, he conquered the grave, and he did that so that we might be able to conquer those things through him. And so, God, I'm thankful that Jesus has done what I simply couldn't do. God, I pray for those in here this morning who cannot partake of this Lord's Supper because they've never trusted in you as their Savior. God, I pray that through this, maybe you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel help them to see that you are their hope. You are the only hope that we have. So God bless this time together, we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. 
You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.